You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, everyone. Excellent to be with you again, and welcome to episode 33. I had an email this week from a very nice man in Alaska. Alaska, for goodness sake. To be honest, I've never really looked into where you all are, but receiving an email from someone in Alaska ignited my curiosity. So I've been snooping this week, and it's interesting stuff. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. This podcast has now been downloaded in every U.S. state except for Rhode Island, Hawaii, and North Dakota. So if one or more of you wouldn't mind just crossing a state line and downloading an episode as it's playing havoc with my OCD. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. 75% of you download from the United States. Next is the United Kingdom. Then it goes Australia, Canada, Netherlands, Ireland, Mexico, Germany, Austria, Belgium, France, Chile, Czech Republic, South Africa, Sweden, Turkey, Argentina, Poland, Israel, Denmark, Singapore, and then, mysteriously, other regions. I'm guessing this means Atlantis or Area 51 or... Possibly. Do let me know if you live in other regions. Maybe you're on a different plane of existence or you're stuck in a game of Jumanji or something. Pack up, let's fly away. You know, you have to love an auctioneer. But above all things, you have to love a tobacco auctioneer. Listen to the chant of the tobacco auctioneer. Naturally, the independent tobacco experts, like the auctioneer you just heard, know who buys what tobacco. With these experts, with men who know tobacco best, it's lucky. Two to one.
So I did try to make Confession the film club choice this week, but it was blocked by Warner Brothers. So the film this week is The Magnificent Topper, starring Cary Grant and Roland Young. So do go and check that out. It's a brilliant supernatural comedy about a pair of hard-drinking, party-loving ghosts, played by Cary Grant and Constance Bennett, who decide to use their magical powers to reform the rather stuffy and rather henpecked banker Cosmo Topper played by Roland Young. We're really not being very fair to him. I don't think he he knows how to drink. Oh, well, he only had a couple of glasses of wine. Yes, but I don't think he's ever had a drink in his life. Poor Topper. Poor Topper. Poor Topper. You keep out of this. Oh. Say, George, you know something? What? I think fate's him to us. Yeah, well, I think we ought to send him right back. Oh, no. He looks like our last chance at a, at a good deed. That's how he looks to you. Well, look at him. His whole soul is crying out for self-expression. There are some scenes that make me laugh out loud. For instance, the fantastic part where they get Topper roaring drunk and have to carry him through a hotel lobby. They're invisible and he's passed out. And the sight of a ridiculously drunk Roland Young, eyes closed, being escorted by invisible friends through a busy lobby is one of the funniest things ever. Go and take a look. It's on the Film Club page at attaboyclarence.com until next Monday. Incidentally, if you really want to see Confession, you can do so at vhd.com. That's V-E-E-H-D.com. You will need to register and make sure you're signed in. Otherwise, you'll get a message saying that your plug-in doesn't work. You're also better off using Firefox for some reason. Anyway, once you're signed up and signed in, just search for Confession 1937 and it will pop up. Love to know what you all think. I absolutely loved it. Take a minute. See what's in it. When you're buying a vitamin product, read the label. Make sure you get all the vitamins recommended by government experts. You do in VIMS, and three essential minerals also. Get VIMS at your druggist. VI for vitamins. So, VI for vitamins, okay. Double MS for minerals. Double MS for minerals, that's sloppy work. Go and rethink your slogan. VIMS, this is the National Broadcasting Company. For all you cinephiles out there, you'll know that 1939 is renowned as the greatest year in movie history. There was something magical happening that year, and it saw a string of some of Movieland's finest ever creations brought to life. You had Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Dark Victory, Love Affair, Ninotchka, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, uh, Wuthering Heights, The Roaring Twenties, Son of Frankenstein, Boges, Destry Rides Again, The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Women. It was, quite simply, Hollywood at its peak. He had smash hits in other years too, but my God, they were getting it right in 1939. And not just that, but cinema attendance was through the roof all over the world. Well, today I'm not going to sing the praises of the hallowed, but show you that even 1939 wasn't bulletproof. Let's go trawling through the mud as I proudly present you with the worst films of 1939. Let's begin with the mystery of Mr. Wong. This stars Englishman Boris Karloff as a Chinese-American detective who's present when a wealthy jewel collector 
named Brandon Edwards is shot dead at a party. Well, Mr. Wong, Chinese-American English-Chinese detective, must decide who is guilty. Is it his wife, Valerie, whose favorite words seem to be, please, Peter? You're terrified, aren't you? You're trembling. Peter, stop it, please. Valerie, how long are you going to stand for this sort of thing? Peter, please. You're afraid of him, aren't you? You try to hide it, but you can't. It's becoming more apparent every day. Peter, please. Valerie, don't you see where you're heading? Do you want the same fate as his first wife? A suicide? Peter, please. He drove her to it with one refined cruelty after another. Peter, please. He's doing the same thing to you. Peter, stop it, please. Oh, but Valerie, can't you see I love you? Peter, please. I won't listen. Yes, you will. I won't stand by and see the woman I love torn to pieces. Peter, please. I, I can't stand much more. Peter, stop it, please. Someday I'm going to kill him. Peter! Is it his secretary, Peter, the recipient of the many please, Peters? Is it the Russian singer they have living with them? Yes, they have a Russian singer living with them, because who knows? Or is it Drina, their Chinese maid? The Chinese maid called Drina. God bless Boris Karloff, he's one of my favorite actors, but for the love of God, he was no Chinaman. It's one of the worst makeup jobs in the world. They basically rub some boot polish on his face and stand him there. They don't even tell him to do an accent. This is Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. Alone, bad, friend, good. This is Boris Karloff as a mad scientist. The only way to convince them is an experiment on man himself. And this is Boris Karloff as a Chinaman. Twenty minutes ago, the victim was still alive, but I'd hoped it was an accident. Now, I, I wonder. <laughs> you, could, you could tell this film was written by an American, too. Don't you remember what they told you in Shanghai? What would happen if that jewel ever left China? They said it carried the curse of Emperor Hong Chong Chu. Hong Chong Chu. Did he show you the beautiful manuscript he has of the legend of Wu Wang? Wu Wang! There's also a Russian character called Mr. Stroganov. Michael Stroganov. Michael Stroganov the Russian. And interestingly, even though America is a nation of many millions, there was only one person with the surname Wong in 1939. I'd like to invite Mr. Wong, too. The Chinese detective? Who else? In case you were worrying about my absence last night, I was receiving the eye of the daughter of the moon. Brandon. You pervert. Yes, the stone that gets stolen is snappily entitled the eye of the daughter of the moon, which has way more of those than it needs to. It all seems to be set in one room and on one landing too, and vast periods of sweet nothing happen. The whole film is essentially men in suits standing in groups of three and discussing things politely. Well, I think you should know that Edwards left a letter in his safe to be opened in the event of his death. He did. And when Janny and I looked for it last night, it was gone. They say things like that to each other, and then they walk into a different room, assemble in the center, and say more things to each other. How did you feel about the changing of this will? Well, naturally, I was indignant. It is quite possibly the dullest mystery I've ever watched. It's catastrophically dull. It's like listening to you 2 while staring at Tim Henman's holiday photos. And why do the Chinese characters talk in English to each other when they're in private? Ross, he thought he had original, stolen from temple of ancestry. Those who profane their dwelling places, the gods destroy. I wish I could tell you who did it, but I fell asleep four times. Four times I tried to watch the ending, just the last ten minutes. But no, it's powerfully bad. Bad with a vengeance. Bad times two. Electric boogaloo. 
silly, silly Boris Karloff. Next up is Zenobia, starring Oliver Hardy and an elephant. I don't know what's sadder, really, the sight of an elephant being shouted at for 73 minutes, or Hardy without Laurel. Yes, this was Hardy's first outing without his partner, and straight away he's missed. So the story here is of a country doctor in 1870, played by Oliver Hardy, who's called to a circus to tend to a sick elephant called Zenobia. And when he cures her, the elephant falls in love with him and starts to follow him around. Chaos ensues! Oh, oh no, 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 stop, look out, Ah, oh, doctor, that's just her way of showing gratitude. She likes you. I like her too. But I wouldn't do this to her. Tell her to put me down. Oh, all right. Zenobia let him down. They go to a party and Zenobia crashes through the doors. It follows him home. It follows him out into the town. It's basically fatal attraction with an elephant. And Hardy does that thing where every time something that's supposed to be funny happens, he stares into the camera and sort of scowls. It wouldn't be so bad if the entire film was just Hardy falling over and being stalked by an elephant, but they tried to crowbar some horribly awkward scenes about racism into the plot. There is a hideously uncomfortable scene where Hardy tries to explain racism to his little slave boy. Dr. Tibbet, will I ever turn white? Mm, I'm afraid not, Zeke. Why? Then I'm never going to be nothing else except just what I am. Only bigger? Well, what's wrong with being just what you are? Just that all the other little boys around, they can go to parties, like the party tonight, because they're white, and I can't, because I'm not. You don't go to white folks' parties, I don't go to colored folks' parties, but that makes no real difference. You understand? No, sir. Well, Zeke, it's like this. You know that medicine kit down in my office? Yes, sir. Well, there's black pills in it, and there's white pills in it. And they're both good kinds of pills. Some people couldn't do without one kind, and some couldn't do without the other. You understand? No, sir. You get the feeling that he's trying to be progressive, but all he does is point out the vast differences between white people and black people in 1870. Doesn't help that he has a slick-down hairstyle either, so it basically looks like an overweight Hitler explaining his views on foreigners to a child. I've seen some people remark that the film is actually rather noble when it comes to its views on racism. If that's the argument, then it's undone by the fact that there's a servant called Zero who's played as an absolute drooling idiot. What happened, Zero? Uh, trying to figure out another account. Well, was somebody sick? No, sir. She never said medicine. She well, was there fire? No, sir. There was no fireman there. Can't you think of what's wrong? Yes, I know what's wrong, but... I just can't remember, Doctor. So you get racism, elephant stalkers, and a laurelless hardy in a comedy where the funniest thing that happens is when an elephant stands on a hat. It's about as funny as someone slowly pressing a very old fish into your nostril over the course of 73 minutes. <laughs> Lastly, and I do not say this lightly, is the hands-down worst film 
I've ever reviewed on this podcast. And I say that having told you about the Phantom Creeps and the Trollenberg Terror. It's a shame, too, because this stars two men I greatly admire, Mr. Bela Lugosi and Mr. Lionel Atwell. This is a horror comedy, and its name is The Gorilla. According to the newspapers, The Gorilla gives his victim only 24 hours' notice. <laughs> oh. Oh, nonsense. Now, you go back to bed and don't worry about this. Back to bed? Who, me? Oh, don't go back to bed. I'm not particularly interested where you go. This concerns a murderer known only as The Gorilla, who has been terrorising a small town. When he sends a threatening note to the wealthy Walter Stevens, Stevens responds by hiring a trio of bumbling detectives to investigate, with hilarious results. First of all, the film begins with a gorilla's arm daintily pinning the death threat to a lady's cardigan, which doesn't exactly fill you with much fear. She then runs screaming through the house, only to run into Belly Lugosi, who's the butler of the house, and who says things like, What is all this racket about? If Belly Lugosi is your butler, I can pretty much assure you that you will be killed. The plot trudges on from there. The three comedy investigators are played by the Ritz brothers, who are about as funny as stubbing your toe on a nest of tarantulas and falling into a bath of leeches. This is typical of the comedy. Now look here, where were you last night? Me? Why I... Answer yes or no. I was... What were you doing there? Doing where? Well, how do we know? Besides, I don't like your looks. Did you ever take a good look at yourself? Yeah, did you ever take a look? Hey, now wait a minute, you. Where were you last night? I spent my night with Shakespeare. Yeah? Where is he? He's dead. Dead? A murder mystery. Have you any idea who did it? Look, Shakespeare's been dead hundreds of years. This is a fine time to call us in on the case. Say, but she couldn't have done it. How do you know? She can't be hundreds of years old. Unfortunately for us, the Ritz brothers get a lot more screen time than Lugosi and Atwell, who vanish as soon as they arrive and only reappear at the end. As for the mystery, it's terribly cack-handed. The continuity is all over the place and the solution makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. There's a scene at the end in which all a certain character has to do is to speak up in order to reveal the villain's identity. But instead, he just sits there shaking his head. In case you're wondering, there is an actual gorilla in the film. Well, I say actual gorilla. It's actually a man in a gorilla suit. In fact, it's such a bad costume. It looks more like a gorilla in a man suit. It took all my willpower to get through this one. It's more boring than Prince Andrew's haircut. And the Ritz brothers' attempts at laughs actually caused me to shout the words, Good fucking God, in a room filled with children. It is the film equivalent of covering your testicles in honey and then smacking said testicles with a wrench made from red ants. Avoid with a passion. <sighs> well, now you're, now you're all armed with reasons why 1939 was just as fallible as any other year in cinema. Let's skip ahead slightly to 1943, because while we have definitely spent enough time in the company of the Ritz brothers, our visit with Bela Lugosi was far too brief. The radio play for today features Mr. Lugosi as a very strange doctor who has some rather deadly theories. So turn up the volume and relax into a classic episode from radio's outstanding theatre of thrills, Suspense in a clever little tale entitled The Doctor Prescribed Death. See you on the other side, or will I?
Yes, I will. Suspense. This is the man in black. Here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our star tonight is Bela Lugosi, playing the part Professor Antonio Basile, psychologist. The story is by J. Donald Wilson, who calls it The Doctor Prescribed Death. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. This series of tales is calculated to intrigue you, stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with the doctor prescribed death and Bela Lugosi's performance. We again hope to keep you in suspense. Professor Antonio Basile has a theory, but let him tell you about it. As a psychologist, I have worked out a theory. A theory I know to be sound. I contend that a person who has decided to kill himself can very easily be turned from this desire to the desire of taking the life of another. I can prove my theory. And if necessary, that is exactly what I will do. Yes, Professor Antonio Basile has a theory, but only a theory. And he's worried about what his publisher will say. So he visits the editor, whose name is Hellman. Hellman finishes the manuscript and tosses it on the desk. Professor Basile leans forward eagerly and... Well, Hellman, what do you think? Professor Basile, it's purely conjecture, simply a theory, and I wouldn't advise publishing it. I worked on that theory for a long time. I'm positive of it. I know it'll work. Suppose it will. What good is it? What good have you accomplished if you can prove it'll work? <laughs> Are you laughing at me, Herman? It's so silly. An ordinary human being has suffered reverses. is sick of it all. He wants to leave it all behind. And you say he can be changed to want to kill someone else. I do. Self-destruction and the destruction of other life are closely related in the mind. The dividing line is very thin. It's ridiculous. And you won't publish it? Ranger would fire me. Why? He told me that, in his opinion, you should be in the asylum. Mr. Granger said that. Does he think I'm insane? <laughs> How do I know? Herman, Mr. Granger didn't say that. It's you who thinks I'm crazy. You've never liked me. For some reason, you are trying to tear me down. Well, we'll see, Mr. Hellman. We'll see. Now, wait a minute. I'll show you whether my works are illogical. I'll show you whether I'm insane. Oh, calm down. <laughs> I'm going to make you eat those words. I know you don't like me, but I'm going to prove that my theory is sound. Good night. Wait a minute. Basil, wait. You wait, Herman. You wait. Yes, wait, Herman. Wait. Professor Basile, seething with resentment, rushes from the office and strides angrily down the street. Insane, huh? I'll prove my theory. 
I'll find the subject. I'll find someone who wants to take his own life. And so Basile goes home late for dinner. He finds a note from his wife, Myra, saying she's decided to attend the opera and will be home around 11.30. Then Professor Basile gets an inspiration. He goes to the bridge over the deep canyon, the bridge called Suicide. And strangely enough, he hasn't long to wait. As he stands against the railing in the fog, a figure appears a few feet beyond, stops, prepares to leap. Don't do it! Wait a minute! Listen. Huh? That's very silly. Let go of me. Oh, no. I couldn't do that. I need you. I don't need you. Don't you know this is uh, against the law? You're not an officer. You can't stop me. It's 500 feet to those tracks below. Hard steel rails. And don't believe what they all tell you about not being conscious of what happened. You'd know. People don't die instantly. Let loose. They lie in agony for minutes and sometimes for an hour. It's a horrible death, I know. How do you know? I'm a doctor. Doctor? Yes. I can tell you much simpler ways, much less painful ways and quicker. You're a nice young girl, an intelligent girl. You wouldn't want it to happen this way. Maybe after I talk to you a while, you wouldn't want to do this at all. No. No. But come on. Let's talk it over. Maybe a few minutes' talk will change the entire picture for you. What could you do to help me? If you'll come, I'll tell you. There's a motive back of your wanting to do this, and I'd like to know what it is. Nothing doing. Haven't you any relatives? Any loved ones you'd like to do something for? Yes. Then if you'll talk with me for a while... Maybe I can find my way clear to help those people. You sound crazy to me. Oh, no. All right, I'll... Where? My apartment. Let's go. Well, here we are. Come in, please. Well, what do you want to know? Sit down first. Are you hungry? No, I'm not that broke. It isn't poverty. I knew that. I could tell by your clothes. Now, first, why did you come here? Why? Why, because you talked me into it. I <laughs> see. You're not afraid of me? Afraid? In my frame of mind. What can I lose? Suppose I told you that I really brought you here to kill you. Kill me? You know, you're a very pretty girl, don't you? Yeah. That doesn't always mean so much. The right man, it might. That's what I thought. But I found out it didn't mean a thing. Ah. Then it was because of a man. I knew it. Really? How did you guess? I'm a student of psychology. I'm Professor Antonio Basile. I see. And you want to know what makes me tick? You want to know the reason behind my action tonight? That's right. I would like to know what happened to make you want to kill yourself. Suicide is a mental aberration. Yeah. I'd like to know what preceded the decision to destroy yourself. And what you thought about until the moment I stopped you on the bridge. What good will that do me? You said you weren't broke. But you also said 
You had some loved ones you'd like to do something for. I meant I wasn't broke to the point of being hungry. I have a few dollars. But you suggested help for someone in larger terms. Yes, I did. Who is the loved one? My mother. You are her only means of support? Yes. And you intend to kill yourself? Yes. That's being selfish, isn't it? Selfish? Yes. You are concentrating solely on self. You think so? What else? The first law of human nature is self-preservation, right? I suppose so. The second law is the preservation of family. Yeah. So you decide to deny the first law and destroy yourself. And as a consequence, deny the second and leave your mother alone and in need. You indicate a form of insanity. What would be normal? To destroy the other person. The one who has done you wrong. Have you hurt him? No. Then the one who has done wrong should be the one to suffer. You have no legal recourse? Legal recourse? No, I haven't, I'm sorry to say. And you would kill yourself to let your poor mother suffer because of the wrong of another. Why shouldn't he be the one to suffer? I suppose you're right. Why shouldn't he? What happened after all? Why not tell me about it? Were you married? No. I never seemed to find time to get around to marriage. What's your name? Gladys. Gladys Tanner. How long had you known him? Almost four years. And you always thought he meant to marry you? Yes. Until three weeks ago. Yes? On July 1st, he had to leave town for a week on business. Said he was going to Kansas City. When he came back, he seemed to be too busy to see me. Then a week ago, I found a snapshot along with several others in his desk in his home. May I see it? Certainly. It's a picture of him and another woman. But the picture was not taken in Kansas City. It was? No. It was taken on the beach at Atlantic City. And it's dated by the finisher, July 3rd. Since he returned, he's refused to see me. Yesterday, he finally said he didn't care to see me anymore. But I'd better forget him. But it isn't so easy as that, is it? No. I figured I'd done something. And blame myself. Do you... Uh, do you know this blonde woman in this uh, snapshot? No. Then it must be a woman uh, he has met uh, recently. You've known him for, for four years. I don't think you are to blame. He's the one in the wrong. And he should be made to suffer. How? You were going to kill yourself. Why should you? Kill him instead. He double-crossed you. He deserves it. Now, let me go a little deeper into the situation. Whenever a person has reached the conclusion to take his life... You have made up your mind, Miss Tanner. Positive. Now, if you're careful, you won't be caught. No. But whether you are or not, I'm giving you this check for a thousand dollars made out to cash to be sent to your mother only after the man is dead. Write his name on this pad. There you are. 
I will know what has happened by the newspapers. And I will be told payment until I learn that you have gone through with it. It'll happen tonight. Very well. You are sure? You are determined? Absolutely. Nothing could stop me. Very good. But just what would happen if I did get caught? You won't get caught if you follow my instructions. I know. Now, here is a small revolver. It'll fit easier in your purse. That's all you need. Be sure to wipe your fingerprints off. And leave the gun near the body. Yeah. Well, goodbye, Dr. Basile. Goodbye, Gladys. And good luck. Professor Basile watches Gladys as she crosses the street to the dimly lighted bus stop. Then he rushes to his car and drives away. A few minutes later, he comes to a stop at Hellman's house. Hellman, the editor who ridiculed his theory. Just a minute. Oh. Hello, Basile. Good evening, Hellman. Thought I'd drop out to have a little chat with you. Well, why this time of night? It's kind of late, isn't it? Eleven. Didn't think that was late for you. Oh? Uh, come in. Thanks. Sit down. What's on your mind? I want to talk to you about my theory you ridicule so definitely. My theory about suicide. Oh. Well, I just don't believe it, that's all. And I said I'd prove it, didn't I? Yes, but what are you getting at? It's going to be proved. My theory is going to be proved tonight. Oh, that's fine. Go right ahead and prove it. I don't like you, Hellman. I never liked you. And I know you don't like me. I can't help that, Basile. What are you staring at? Is there someone here with you? Certainly not. Why? That's a woman's purse on the Davenport. Hmm? Oh, my secretary dropped by earlier this evening with the manuscript. She must have forgotten it. She's not here now? Of course not. Then I'll continue. I found a subject. A girl who was ready to commit suicide because a man jilted her. In a few hours, I was successful in changing her thoughts from suicide to homicide, and she is going to kill the man tonight. What do you think of that? There may be a dozen murders tonight. Ah, but you'll know which one I mean. You'll know about this murder. What do you mean? Because I'm going to tell you who the victim is going to be. You know who the intended victim is? Why don't you stop it? <laughs> but then I wouldn't have proved my theory. If you put this girl up to it, you're as guilty as she is. <laughs> you're insane, Basile. Hopelessly insane. You think so, Emma? The whole idea is mad. Too utterly ridiculous for words. <laughs> no sane man would ever think of such a useless, senseless idea. And for heaven's sake, stop laughing. I'm thinking about the victim... Then he learned. Who is the victim? Martin Harriman. Me? Yes, you. <laughs> I don't believe you. You will this time. Who is this girl? I know no girl who'd want to kill me. This one does. Now. Oh, nonsense. However, I wouldn't put a past you to hire someone to do something like this. No, no. This girl is no fake. This girl is serious. Deadly serious. You probably hypnotized some poor woman, figuring she'd never remember what happened. Oh, Hellman, you underestimate me. Maybe I do underestimate your evil mind. 
But believe Put me... Put up your hands, Hellman. Get away from that desk. I'll just take care of that gun, Hellman. That's better. Well, since when did you start carrying a gun, Basil? Ah, a gun? Don't be silly. This isn't a gun in my pocket. It's just my pipe. See? <laughs> well, what do you hear, Hellman? Uh, nothing. Oh, yes, you do. I heard it, too. The sound on the porch. I leave now. The back way. I put your gun in the kitchen. And I'll be very careful to remove all my fingerprints. You insane fool. Oh, fancy you. You, Hellman, you are going to help prove my theory. <laughs> Good night, Hellman. I'll have him locked up before he gets across town. Good evening, Mr. Hellman. Huh? How did you get in here? Through the patio door. What do you want? I wanted to talk to you. Very strangely. <laughs> You're just imagining things. And what are you doing here? I wanted to tell you something. Yeah? What? When you first indicated to me that you were through with me, I was terribly hurt. I thought all along that we were to be married. I couldn't understand. I tried and tried to think of something I'd done to cause our breakup. Then I happened to find this snapshot in your desk. Snapshot? Take a look at it. Kansas City. No, Atlantic City, New Jersey. You and a blonde. And the date is stamped on the back. A business trip. Ha! <laughs> Well, what about it? I just wanted you to know that you weren't so slick. I wanted you to know that I knew about the blonde. That I knew you'd lied. Now that you've told me, what good does it do you? A lot of good. First, I thought you came here for money. How could you think such a thing? Well, I think you'd better go now. <laughs> I'm going. Goodbye, Morton. And good luck in your new venture. What venture? This one. Gladys. Gladys! And wish me luck in mine. Gladys stands staring a moment at the body of Hellman and wipes off the gun. Drops it to the floor, takes the professor's check from her purse, steps to Hellman's desk and writes a note. Then she puts the note in an envelope with the check, addresses it, stamps it, turns out the lights, and steps out into the dark street. At the corner, she drops the envelope in the mailbox and disappears. Professor Basile heard the shots. His theory worked. Hellman will torment him no more. Perfect crime. So he can go home to his wife now and go to sleep. Myra. Myra. Huh? What? Oh, oh, Antonio. What are you doing asleep on the Davenport? Do you know what time it is? It must be after midnight. I've been waiting for you. How was opera? Oh, fair. Nothing to brag about. Who sang the lead? Bill Chiotti. He wasn't very good. Well, yes. Mm -hmm. He's a poor old fellow. Well, hello. 
I thought they were uh, doing Ida tonight. No, they switched because someone was ill. They just as soon as stayed home. Have a night, Capmeira? No, thanks. I'm tired. I think I'll go to bed. I'll be long presently. Good night. Then the night passes and the morning comes. The professor rises cheerfully and prepares for breakfast. Then... I get it, Myra. Yes? Are you Professor Basile? Yes. May we come in? We'd like to talk with you. Of course. What is it you want? Is your wife in? Yes. We'd like to see her, too. You are Oh, I'm Lieutenant Davis. Detective Davis. Well, what do you want? Will you call your wife? Why? Suddenly. Myra! But what's this all about? What is it, Antonio? These men are from detective headquarters. They want to talk to us. Really? What about? May I ask where you were last night, Mrs. Basile? Certainly. I went to the opera. What time did you get home? Oh, I imagine it was around 11 or shortly after. Mm Mm-hmm. Were you at home last evening, Professor? Well, I was at the club and got home about 12.30. By the way, uh, do you know a Morton Hellman? Certainly. What about him? He's been murdered. Murdered? Good Lord. When? Around midnight last night. I found him this morning. How terrible. Why, I've known him for years. He was editor-in-chief of the company publishing my writings. I'm a psychologist, you know. Yes, I know. But, uh... What do you want to know from us? We weren't connected socially with Hellman. Uh, just in business. Did uh, you know him, Mrs. Basile? Yes, yes, I knew him very slightly. Did either of you know of anyone who'd have reason to kill him? Uh, certainly not. Everyone thought highly of him. Did you ever hear of a girl named Gladys Tanner? Gladys Tanner? No. Did you know of a Gladys Tanner, Mrs. Basile? No. Is this your purse, Mrs. Basile? Why, of course it is. That's the one I gave you last Christmas, Myra. Well, yes. I must have lost it downtown. Where did you find it, Lieutenant? At Hellman's home. Hellman's home? Well, how in the world? Good heavens, but... We found it on the sofa. I can't imagine how it could get there. And this is the revolver that killed Hellman, found on the floor beside him. What? No fingerprints on it, however. What? May I see it? Why, Myra, this is your gun. I bought this for you two years ago. When I went on the lecture tour. Yes, I think it's mine, but it just doesn't make sense. Did you have the gun in your purse when you lost it last night? Well, I, perhaps I did. I'm so confused now, I can't remember. I think, I think it is, it is terrible. Oh, I know. Oh, dear, I feel ill. Did you ever fire this gun? Yes, once last year up in the mountains. I wanted to see how it worked. Ever reloaded? No, I've never reloaded it. I, I just didn't think about it. Maybe I did put it in my purse. Why, I don't know, and and whoever found the purse may have used the gun to... Oh, I just can't seem to think. This gun misfired on the first two shots. The other three killed Hellman. This is the most amazing piece of coincidence I ever heard of. Why would my wife want to do such a thing? Why should she get to Hellman? She hardly knew him. Are you sure about that, Professor? Of course. Well, sorry to say that I don't believe her. What? This is ridiculous. This is going to be a shock to you, Professor, but... Here's a snapshot we found on Hellman's desk. Taken in Atlantic City last July. Good heavens. Why, this is you, my... You and Hellman. 
You were at your mother's in Florida in July. <laughs> Myra, look at me. What does this mean? I can't. I can't. And I can't believe such a thing. May I have the purse, the gun, and the photo? Thank you. I'm sorry, but I'll have to take her down to headquarters. But I didn't kill him. I didn't. I wouldn't. I loved him. <laughs> Myra. You better pull yourself together. You'll have to go back. You'll want photos and fingerprints. Yes. You better get it ready, Myra. <laughs> Certainly looks bad for her. Great it does. Looks like an open and shut case. Oh, uh, will you come along too, Professor? Certainly. And so it all worked out beautifully. Not quite as the professor had planned. But then he changed his plan from the moment when Gladys Tanner showed him the snapshot taken in Atlantic City. And he realized that the girl's fiancé was Hellman and the blonde was Myra, his wife. He had no intention of allowing Gladys Tanner to kill Hellman until he saw that snapshot. And when he recognized Myra's purse in Hellman's home... He decided to let Gladys kill him and the blame be placed on Myra. The perfect crime. But several hours later, after fingerprints and many questions, the professor is just about to be dismissed when Sergeant Rankin steps into the room and speaks quietly to Lieutenant Davis. What is it, Rankin? I stayed at the seal's place, as you said. Well? A few minutes ago, a special delivery letter came for the professor. This will knock your eye off. Read it. Mm -hmm. Well, this fits perfectly with the writing we were trying to make out on Helm's desk letter. Professor, here's a letter sent special delivery to you a few minutes ago, postmarked last night. Read it. Dear Professor Basile, your theory worked a certain degree. You convinced me I should kill him. Uh, I should kill him, uh, but when that gun you gave me uh, misfired twice, I, I almost quit. Go ahead, Professor. Read on. Then as I looked at him on the floor, the feeling of self-destruction came back. I'm going ahead with my plan. Here's your check. I won't need it. Besides, I lied to you. I lost my mother long ago. Better luck next time. Gladys, Tana. And a half hour ago, they found her body beneath Suicide Bridge. Well, Professor, your perfect crime has failed. Failed? Yes, Failed, Wonderful but... setup on paper, but your theory backfired and you're up for murder. But I didn't kill him. But you planned it and you're as guilty as Gladys. She's paid her penalty, now it's your turn. No, no. I won't, I won't be hanged. Never! Drink and grab And now the doctor lies on the sidewalk, 17 stories below. His entire theory worked in reverse. And that was the fantastic Mr. Bela Lugosi in The Doctor Prescribed Death. Great little tale. Well, many thanks for being in contact over the past week. If you are at a loose end in the next few days, maybe you consider leaving an iTunes review for one or both the shows. It only takes a moment, and typing it will actually improve your sex drive. Anyway, I shall be back with you next week, so until then, 
Sleep tight. And bye for now. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.